Well, it's a joy to welcome you here, whether you are a regular attender or maybe a guest visiting with us for first or second time. Uh, I hope you'll feel at home in this place, and uh, it's a joy to welcome in those of you who are right now tuning us in, either live online or maybe you're coming back and watching this later in the week in an archived version. Either way, it's good to have you be a part of Worship at Freedom. Today, I'm going to wrap up a series uh, that has been entitled, Don't Miss the Point. And uh, as we conclude this series, I want to begin with the question that that title suggests, and that is, what is the point? What is the point of, of all of this? What, what is Jesus' point in all of this? What, what is he up to? What is the point of, of faith and religion and all of the stuff that we go through as Christians in trying to live out our faith and, and pursue the heart of faith? What's it all about? I mean, if, if somebody who was on the outside looking in, who was a seeker, if they ask you those questions, you know, seeing that you go to church and knowing that, that faith and religious life is a significant part of your life and experience, if they said to you, well, so to what end do you do these things? To, what is the point of all of this stuff? How would you answer that? And what is it that God is wanting to do in you and in me and in us? What's he after? Is the ultimate goal that he would get us to come to church a lot? Well, I hope that's not it. I mean, hope he's got something better in mind than that. Is it that, that he would clean you up so that you wouldn't make as many dumb mistakes? So that you wouldn't get in as much trouble? Is, is that it? That it's, that it's about just making a better version of you? Well, I hope that some of the result of that is that we'll be better people. But is that really all that it's about? Of course, you know, for a lot of us, we're, we're going to be real quick to say, it's about getting me into heaven and missing hell, right? You know, they say when people get saved, some do it because they see the light, others because they feel the heat. And a lot of us are in the feel the heat category. It's like, the point is to miss hell and to get to heaven. Well... You know, we certainly believe and trust that that's part of the equation. But really, is that all that it's about? It's not. It's really not the point. There is something more meaningful at the heart of all of this. And I want to share a story with you today. It's a passage I don't think I have ever preached or taught in any venue, any setting in my life. It's, it's a little bit of a peculiar story. But it's a great story because I believe it, it gives us... <coughs> I'm sorry, I'm fighting a cold, so bear with me. It's a story that gives us a glimpse at the, the answer to the question. In, in one sense, what is it all about? And it's in Luke 24. If you've got your Bibles, please turn with me there. We're going to read a little story that, <clears throat> that comes under the heading <clears throat> On the Road to Emmaus. Last weekend... We celebrated Resurrection Sunday, and we talked about the events that concluded Passion Week. We talked about the, the pain of Friday and enduring the Fridays of life, and we talked about the confusion and doubts of the Saturdays of life, and then we talked about how Sunday makes all the difference and the victory uh, and, and relief that comes on Sunday. I've got a tickle that just will not go away, so... <clears throat> We will get through this today. <clears throat> what we're going to read today is about what happened on Resurrection Sunday, but not at dawn on Resurrection Sunday morning. We're going to read about Resurrection Sunday afternoon. Now, I want you to consider for a moment 
this is without a doubt the one day that has defined and reshaped human history more than any other day. And we could talk at great length about that. There's nothing that has come close to what Jesus' resurrection will do to redefine the, the course of human history. So, Jesus now, having literally just today, on this day, having just risen from the dead, he's got important business at hand, doesn't he? I mean, you think about, what is the risen Christ, who now, with his resurrection, is proving that the devil is defeated, that the power of the kingdom of darkness is broken, that sin and death have been overcome? I mean, Jesus is fresh out of the tomb. Only in the last few hours has he marched out with the keys of of, you know, death and hell swinging by his side. What's he going to do? What's his agenda going to be for the first day? I mean, this is going to be significant, isn't it? This ought to sort of define what the, you know, life now for the post-resurrected Jesus is going to look like and be all about. Well, let's see what he does. Luke 24, verse 13. <coughs> now, that same day, two of them... We're going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing them. And he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Now, the two that are walking on the road to Emmaus, we don't know for sure who they are. A lot of people think that it was um, Mary, not not the mother of Mary or Mary, uh, not not the mother of Jesus or Mary Magdalene. But there's a there's another Mary in that little pack of women that followed Jesus wherever he went, and the gospel writers say that they attended to his needs. Um, in in John 19:25, uh, at the crucifixion and, and resurrection, this Mary was one of the ladies that was in the mix at the cross and that went to the tomb in the morning. She is the mother. Uh, she is the wife of Clopas, and a lot of people think that it was that couple. They were just among the uh, the disciples of Jesus, not among the the twelve apostles, but just among that that sort of second circle who loved and trusted and followed Jesus. But but they just have in history they've just always been in the shadows. We don't know who they are. Um, we're not positive it was them. But one of the two disciples is going to be referenced later in the passage as Cleopas. And this other passage references Mary and Clopas. Maybe it's the same people, maybe it's not. It doesn't really matter. The bottom line is simply this. They're nobodies. That they are just absolute nobodies in the story. I mean, you think about the 12 that Jesus has invested in so much and and he's poured his ministry into. And there are 11 left after Judas's uh, suicide. And you would think, okay, he's going to immediately go to the 11, right? He's got to rally the troops and get them on board. And where does Jesus start out? With a couple of nobodies who've loved him, who followed him, and who now are taking this long two-hour walk back home, just confused. They're still living in Saturday. The confusion, doubts, and questions of Saturday where we've seen the day of pain, and now we don't have the answers, and we're just talking about it and trying to figure it out. And... Thank you, Rudy. <clears throat> and now, here on, uh, on Sunday afternoon, as they walk along just asking all these questions and, and trying to figure it out, Jesus shows up, and we don't know exactly how this happens, but, but they don't recognize him. We don't know if that's because, you know, maybe he's in an outfit with a 
a hood on it. Or maybe it's just one of those God things that is just like, you know, for for a little while, you're just not going to know who's right there with you. They're certainly not looking for Jesus, but he's just there. He's just like a fellow traveler walking along the road who's just come alongside them. And he begins, as Jesus so often does, I'm always struck in the Gospels, with how much of the time Jesus interacts with people around questions. And so he starts with a question. And he essentially goes, so what is it you guys have been talking about? He's, he's walked for a while just listening. And, and he just acts like he doesn't have any clue and says, what are you all talking about? Now listen to the response of, of the pair. They're walking and talking, and now they just come to a dead stop. Like, are you kidding? They stood still, their faces downcast. And one of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? In other words, I mean, we all are coming from Jerusalem. Did you just pass through? I mean, because you couldn't have possibly been in the holy city over the course of the past weekend and not know what's going on. Everybody knows what we're talking about. How could you not know? And Jesus is still playing dumb. And he goes, what things? What things are you talking about? I love it. He's, he's trying to, to get out of them. I want to know what you're thinking. I want to know right where you are. And by the way, this should be so instructive for us in terms of how we interact with God. Because it's, it's very tempting for us, like when we pray and when we're just interacting with God, to think, well, he knows everything. Why do I really need to talk with him? And this passage is just a great reminder that God loves to dialogue with us. It's his great joy to still ask the same questions. Hey, what's on your mind? What are you thinking about? What are you talking about? Tell me more about that. Tell me what you're thinking. Tell me what your questions are. That's what Jesus is is pulling out of them. What, What things? Well, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a, interesting here now, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests... And our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. In other words, we had held out the hope that he was the Messiah. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. The response is very, very interesting. Well, we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, and in case you don't know who he is, he is a great prophet, certainly one of the greatest men who have ever lived. I mean, powerful in his words, powerful in his actions. He was crucified, and he was buried. We had hoped that he might be the one. And everybody knows what we mean when we say the one. We hoped that he might be the Redeemer of Israel, the the Christ, the, the Messiah. But he was killed, so I guess not. But then they reference something that uh, that's interesting. They say, but, you know... Today was the third day. It's so curious to me that Jesus for six months had said, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to Jerusalem. I will be betrayed. I will be arrested, abused, and murdered. And on the third day, I will rise from the dead. Now, the thing that's so curious is 
Even though he had said that so many times, just that point blank, we don't find anybody on Saturday saying, hey, we're just holding out for Sunday. We're just waiting for the third day. We can't wait to see what the third day is going to hold. We don't find anybody doing that. On Sunday morning, we don't find anybody getting up early going, hey, let's see what he's done. Let's see if he's alive. Nobody's doing that. Now, the women head to the tomb, but they're not going to the tomb to see if he's still there. They're going there with a ton of spices just to take care of the body that they know is still dead. Nobody seems to be attaching any importance to the arrival of the third day in any of the gospel writer accounts anyway. Nobody seems to be pointing to that. This is the only reference to the third day. But we get from this pair that they said, but, you know, today was... The third day. And they say it in a way that seems to suggest like, well, we've all talked about it. You know, that there was something that was supposed to happen on the third day. But you can just sort of imagine the conversations that have happened after the events of Friday. Can't you just picture on like Saturday, you know, when somebody among the twelve had the guts to say, well, you do remember what he said about the third day? Can't you just imagine Peter or somebody else looking back and going, are you kidding me? Were you paying attention yesterday? Going to be raised from the dead? Did you not see his body? Did you not see the spear? I mean, he would need a new body to be raised up. He was beyond dead. He is, he is deader than dead. What do you mean third day? And yet now we hear this reference back to, you know, it was the third day. And, and some, some weird stuff, really weird stuff happened this morning. Some of our women, they went to the tomb and he wasn't there. And they said that they saw angels and talked with him and that they said he was raised, but we haven't seen him. So that's what we're talking about. We're just trying to make sense of it all. Verse 25, they still don't know who Jesus is. And Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. If they just said Jesus was a prophet. And now he's kind of playing off of it. They said, you, you're so hard-headed. You're so slow to believe. You're so slow to believe what you've been taught from the prophets about this guy. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, which is the first century way of referencing all of the Bible, all of the Old Testament, what they had to that point. They were talking about the law and the prophets or Moses and the prophets. So from all of the Old Testament, he explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. So Jesus, as they just walk along, just does a rather lengthy exposition of the scriptures, referencing the many of the 300 and something prophecies about what would happen in and to and through the Messiah. Verse 28, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going on further. So now we kind of come to a crossroads. It's like, this is where you get off to go into Emmaus or you can keep on going straight, and Jesus is keeping on going straight. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And then later that evening, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, and he gave thanks and broke it, and he began to give it to them. How many times have we read of similar scenes like this? Not just at the Lord's Supper, but... You know, that Jesus would always be the one, the rabbi would be the one to take the bread and break it before they would eat. And if these were among that sort of that second circle of disciples, they had eaten many meals with Jesus. And one more time, they get to, to break bread and be at the table with Jesus. And in that moment, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. 
and he disappeared from their sight. What's up with that? (laughs) He's gone. He disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And so they got up and they returned at once to Jerusalem. Forget the fact that it's getting dark. We've got to get back to the city. They're making this two-hour walk that probably was a lot quicker than that on the return. And then they found the eleven and those with them, who, by the way, were hiding behind locked doors in the dark that night. They found them assembled together, and they said, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. And then the two told what had happened on the way. And how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke bread. And while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking that they had seen a ghost. And Jesus goes on to say, Hey, you're not looking at a ghost. And he shows them his hands and his feet and his side. And he, he spends time talking with them and letting them touch him and see him you know, eat and, and dine there with them. To show them that he is truly and fully alive. Now, my question to you now at this point is, why did he do all of this? And think about, you know, John said at the conclusion of his gospel account, if we tried to write down all of the things that Jesus said and did, all the books of the world could not contain them because it was just so vast what his life and ministry encompassed. And yet... These gospel accounts, which are all you know, relatively brief, you can read an entire gospel biography of Jesus in an hour or two, so every word counts in what the gospel writers record. Now, Jesus is going to spend 40 days on earth between the resurrection and his ascension into heaven, and he's not going to stay in hiding. He is going to appear to so many different people. At one time, he shows up and spends time with more than 500 people at once. Jesus is not making his resurrection a mystery. This is the most significant thing. He's letting everyone know he's alive. It's why Jerusalem was turned upside down, and it's why the the religious and political leaders were just totally at a loss for being able to try and write this off as a, as a hoax or a body snatching because everybody in Jerusalem knew he was alive. He, you know, if he'd have just gone to heaven, eh, we could debate it. But he let the whole world know that he was alive. And so you think about all the things that he said and did that don't get written down about those 40 days. There's very, very little in all four Gospels about what Jesus did post-resurrection before he went back into heaven. And yet, by far, the longest story that we are given about what Jesus did after he rose from the dead is what we just read. How curious. Luke, the great historian, obviously felt like there is tremendous significance in this story that serves as an example for us, I believe, in answer to the question of, What's the point? What's it all about? I'll tell you what it's all about. Jesus came to earth. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus rose from the dead. He went through all of this and invites us into this experience. First and foremost for this one thing. Because he wants us to be near him. He wants to walk with us. On the road of life and beyond for all of eternity, Jesus wants a relationship with us. 
Not the kind of relationship where you meet him and get a ticket to heaven and then you see him again 50 years later in heaven. No, he wants the kind of relationship where you walk together and you talk together and you share in the intimate experiences of life. This story is a glimpse of what all of it was about. That God, when he made us, he wasn't trying to figure out how he was going to get his stuff done. So he had to make a bunch of helpers. Are you kidding the God who could speak a whole another universe into existence with his, just His words. He doesn't need our help in anything. Why did He make us? What is He calling us to? He is calling us into relationship. His, I mean, when you think about all the things that reveal who God is, His ultimate title is Father, the head of a family. And God's great desire in creation has always been this one thing. That he would form a family of men and women who would freely choose to honor and relate to him as their father. That he could just pour out his goodness on us and that we could just walk in intimate fellowship with him. I've got really good news for you this morning. Today isn't at all about what you need to do to be a better Christian. Today is about receiving the good news of why God called you to be a Christian. So that you could know and experience the whole of your life in close fellowship with Him. So that in the darkest and most difficult days, just like these two were going through, that you would have Him right there at your side, interacting with you, helping you to deal with that, helping you to make sense of it. And so that on the, the ordinary days and the fun days, that He would be right there with you, giving meaning and joy to, to everything that happens. That's what the story of the, the Emmaus Walk is all about. It's about God desiring above anything else intimacy with you. That's good news, isn't it? That's pretty hard to believe. And it's so significant that there were, to me it's so significant, that on that afternoon, Jesus made at least two appearances before he shows up with the whole crowd of the the 11 on the night that we, you know, at the very end of this passage, we do know that uh, Jesus appeared to Mary there in the garden. There was, which again, interesting thing, she's such an insignificant character in the story. And the first resurrection appearance is to just an ordinary nobody woman to make himself known. And there's apparently another appearance, Luke, I mean, a uh, Paul refers to it in his letter to the Corinthians, and Cleopas references it here. He says, when they show up with the disciples, one of the first things they say is, Jesus did appear to Simon. And out of context, it's kind of like, what's he talking about? Clearly, as, as Paul references, after he was resurrected on that Sunday, there was some moment in the course of the day where Jesus got Peter alone. And he showed up to Peter. And it's obvious that before this pair left Jerusalem to walk back home, that Peter had shown up and goes, guys, you're not going to believe this. He is alive and I've seen him. And it's pretty obvious from how the conversation is going that they must have been like, and we're thinking Peter had a little too much to drink today or something. You know, we, we can't believe Peter's story. And they show up and one of the first things that they want to say is Peter was right. He did appear to, Jesus did appear to Peter. He really is alive, we know, because we've seen him too. Two of the three appearances when he's first risen, it's, it's to ordinary people. Luke doesn't give us the detailed account of what Jesus said when he met with Peter. It was more significant to Luke to share what Jesus did when he came and walked alongside the nobodies like you and me. 
I really think Luke was trying to say to us, this is the heart of what it's all about. Jesus didn't die, first and foremost, for the Pope or the preacher or the deacon. Jesus died for the common man and woman. And Jesus longs to walk with the common man and woman as much as he wants to walk with anybody. Now, there are five truths that I just want to mention in reference to this that I think help us to, to hang on to this. The first one is this, that we often encounter Jesus in unexpected times and ways. They did not expect to meet Jesus on the road. He's just there. And that's a great picture of, of how Jesus shows up in our lives many times. Is there talking and thinking about what had happened, Jesus came near and started walking beside them. I would dare say to followers of Christ across this room and watching online, there have been many times in your life that you've just been walking along, thinking, maybe talking, maybe wrestling with something, and suddenly Jesus was just there. I'm not talking about moments where if there had been a photographer, they could have gone snap and you would have gone, oh, wow, I didn't see him there. He was just right there with his beard and his you know, long robe. No, 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 I don't mean that. I'm talking about this thing that is a part of the mystery of our faith. Now, I'm just going to tell you, if you don't know me, I'm an analytical thinker. I'm a math and science kind of guy. I like to be able to measure and understand things. But even those of us who think like I think have to set that aside at times and understand at the heart of our faith, there is this wonderful mystery that is God. And this is where, you know, if you're a, a person who's got to have a box and a category for everything, you've got to be able to define and measure and explain everything, you're going to have real problems in, in matters of faith and in dealing with God because He won't fit in your categories and He won't fit in your boxes. For those of us who want to be technical about it and go, no, wait a minute. I know where, and I'm saying this confessionally because I've thought like this at times. It's like, you know, where is Jesus right now? I know where he is. He's seated on the throne at the right hand of God the Father. We don't have to do a, you know, a, a body check on Jesus. We know where he is. And he's promised he's going to come back from there. So, you know, how is it we talk about Jesus coming and being with us? It is part of the mystery of our faith because you know we again we can kind of be technical and say hey i belong to jesus and so the scriptures assure that the spirit of jesus that is the holy spirit the spirit of christ lives in me he's with me everywhere that i go true he's in you right if you've trusted christ the scriptures are clear the spirit of christ now lives in you so he's with you all the time and yet there are times when you always bearing the spirit of christ you just enter into the presence of Christ and you're like, whoa, Jesus is here. It is so thick. What just happened? I thought he was already with you. Well, he was. But now he really is. How so? I don't know. He just is. Did he leave his throne in heaven? Nope. He's still seated at the right hand of the Father, but he's God. He can pull this stuff off and he does it all the time. When Jesus was on earth for those 33 plus years, he was only in one place at a time. He, it's part of the, the mystery of the incarnation. God took on flesh, so God was in one place at a time. He is no longer bound by that. When he returned to heaven, he came back, the Spirit of Christ, in a form that he's able to be in countless places and is in countless places at the same time. And yet, part of this great mystery is that the Christ is with us all of the time. Boy, there are times... When he is so with us, 
it would be no more real if he were to show up in the flesh and walk beside us on the road. He's so there. You ever been there? If you, have you experienced Christ with you in that kind of way? Say, uh-huh. Me too. Me too. And you can't ever predict it, can you? You can't ever say for sure when it's going to happen. I mean, sometimes just out in nature, you're just walking and taking in the beauty of the sky or the vastness of the mountains or of the sea. And it's just like sometimes do you ever just feel him just draw near and you're like, wow, he's just here. I mean, I wasn't even like singing a praise song. I didn't, I didn't even have to have a worship leader get me there. He's here. Sometimes He's here in church in a special way. I mean, Jesus, who is present with us through His Spirit at all times, and yet He says, when two or three come together in My name, there I will be with them. There's something unique that happens. There's another experience of His presence. Sometimes it's in church. You know, sometimes it's in nature. Uh, Here's a weird one. Sometimes he'll, he'll shock you and he'll show up in your sleep. You ever had that happen before? He'll do it. What is up with that? He's just God. He chooses when he'll draw near. But you know, I would point out, I have observed in my life of all the many different times and places that Jesus has come near, there are three that I have seen him frequently come near during. The first one is, I have seen again and again that Jesus is so near in times of great pain. You know, we talked about last Sunday from Isaiah 43. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. I remember just in, in some really significant times of pain in the last three or four years that I wasn't doing, in many of those moments, I wasn't doing something particularly spiritual in that moment. And yet there would just be this overwhelming sense in the depth of pain that Jesus was just there. And if you said to me in that moment, well, how do you know he was there? What did he say? And I would have to tell you, I don't even, I can't tell you anything he said. I just know he was there. Well, how do you know he was there? I know he was there because... I just had an overwhelming sense of his love and his care and his tenderness in moments when I just didn't feel like I could go on and where I just was overwhelmed with, with just hurt and questions. And all I know is he was just so near in those moments. And I don't know what he was saying other than he must have been whispering in the middle of all that, I love you because... I emerged from those times just so keenly aware of two things. He was with me and he cared about me. You ever been there? In times of pain, many times, those will be the moments that you are most keenly aware that he's there. I'll tell you another time when I've, I've noticed that he comes near so often. And that is when you get invited to and you step into ministry assignments that are just God-sized. And they come in a lot of different packages. I mean, I'm not talking, it doesn't have to be God-sized on the scope of, you know, we're going to go take a nation or we're going to, you know, I'm going to go plant a church. Although he shows up in those moments. But just when you get put in situations where you're going, God, I mean, I really felt like you were leading me to do this, but I can't do this. That's, that's impossible for me. When you get in those moments, it's amazing how many times, boy, Jesus just shows up. He just is there in the middle of that. And then the other one that is, that is actually quite predictable is Jesus draws near. And we encounter Christ in ministry moments when 
we come across somebody who is really hurting or in need and we step in to love them or help them in that time of need. And in fact, Jesus has made that abundantly clear through his teaching that he is there. That we encounter him there. Do you remember in Matthew 25, near the very end of his ministry, Jesus is describing how on the day of judgment, when he separates those who are a part of the family from those who are not. And when he talks about why there will be different rewards for those who are in the family and different levels of punishment for those who are not. And he talks about the, the experiences in life that are going to have such an impact on that. And he says to the righteous ones who have questioned, Lord, you know, these things that you're talking about that we're rewarded for, when, when did we ever see you and encounter you? And, he's, and they said, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I'll tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Isn't that amazing how he worded that? He doesn't say, you know, I, I watched and applauded. I was proud of you. When you did it, you honored me. No, he said, when you were there and you helped somebody who had nothing to offer you in return, when you gave, when you loved, when you extended yourself, and you were doing it for somebody who was really down and out, I was there. You were doing it to me. I was in the middle of that experience. You ever been there? You ever experienced Christ in that way? I can think of, of so many different experiences. I'll just share one as an example. Um, I was flying back from San Diego to a ministry conference that my wife at the time and I had been to. And, uh, you know, we, I would typically try and go to at least one event per year to just take several days to get spiritually fed and, and recharged. And flying from San Diego back to Mobile, doing the usual stop in, in DFW to change planes, but it was a weather day. And uh, it had just stormed like crazy that day uh, in Dallas. And so everything had been shut down in the DFW. And so we were way, way delayed ever getting in. And if you've ever been in that situation before, if you've traveled much, you've been in it many times, um, you, you get there. And the bottom line is, you know, all of your connecting flights have been fouled up. Flights are canceled and you're so delayed getting there. And so it just it's total chaos. So we get there, and, and there are just literally thousands of people lining up at the counters because now you're trying to reschedule flights, and by now it's nighttime, and we're not going to be able to get out that night. And so we, do, we wade through the sea of people to get to the ticket counter and get you know, your voucher for a hotel for the night, and you, you get your pass for another flight scheduled for the next day. And then you, you wade through the same sea of people to try and get some type of transportation to the hotel that you've just gotten a voucher for. And it, it just, if you've traveled a lot, it's still, it's overwhelming and it's confusing trying to figure out where to go. So in the middle of all of this chaos, and we're having to, to look really carefully to try and figure out where to go next, and now we're trying to wade through the sea of humanity to try and get a cab to the airport. And in all of this, we see this one little, frail, older woman who has her bag and she's all alone and she is obviously just confused and doesn't know where to go. And we're, you know, trying to, it, it, you know, it's a bad situation because everybody's trying to get to the airport, get to the, the hotel and get a little bit of rest and, and beat the crowd. And, um, and this lady just doesn't know where to go. And we go up and say, she had been on the flight with us. And, and we're like, do you, 
need help? Do you know where you're going next? And she's like, well, I, I don't. I don't know how to, you know, I don't know where to go to get a cab or, or a shuttle or something. And we said, well, here, let us help you. Aren't you going on the mobile from here? Yes. And, you know, did you get scheduled for this flight early tomorrow morning? Yes. And, well, why don't we just help you get a cab and get to the hotel? In fact, we can just, we'll ride together. If that's, oh, she said, I, I would love that, please. And so we wade through and eventually get, get a ride and we get to the hotel. I've never, I, I've traveled a lot of places and I have never seen the site that I did when we arrived at the hotel. It's 11 o'clock at night. And coming out the doors of a, of a large hotel, out to the sidewalk, and down the length of most of the parking lot is a line that's two or three people wide. The, you know, the airports have just dumped everybody into these hotels. And so you're like, oh, we're going to spend another hour or two out here in the rainy you know, night air waiting in line. So we take this lady in her bags, and we, we go get in line. And thankfully, thank you, Jesus, they... We hear this call in just a few minutes. All passing, you know, all customers that are uh, 70 years or older, please come to the front of the line. And we're like, well, good for you. And we, we, you know, send her up to the front of the line, and we, you know, going to stand there the next hour or two. A few minutes later, she steps out and goes, "Those two people back there are with me." <laughs> so we, uh, we hop in with her, and we go and we share a room together for the night. And the next morning, we get up with her and help her get her bags, get a cab, and we get back to the airport, and we, we take the plane ride home. What we did not know when we first met this lady was that she was a Jewish survivor of the Holocaust who had endured the, the unspeakable things that happened in a concentration camp. She still bore the, the tattooed numbers that the Nazis had, had put on her as they did all prisoners And in the course of the 12 hours that we got to spend with her, what she shared with us totally eclipsed everything that we had taken in in that conference in the several days prior. Here, years later, I can't tell you one thing. I'm sure I heard good stuff, but I can't tell you one thing I learned at that conference. But I will never forget the 12 hours that we spent with this dear little old lady who survived a concentration camp. And the the most significant thing that I can tell you about those 12 hours is that Jesus was just there through all of that. You see, I can't explain it in ways that are going to make that more clear as to, well, how was Jesus there and how did you know he was there? It's just part of the mystery of our faith. He was just there. It wasn't a little old lady from a concentration camp that we were ministering to so much as it was to Jesus, and Jesus was ministering to us. And I'll never forget those 12 hours. It really is the the challenge of everyday life, when we're busy and we've got an agenda and all that we need to do, to recognize that oftentimes the most significant things that are going to happen and the biggest opportunities that we have to draw near to Christ... They're the interruptions, the aggravations. They're the needy people that we just want to go, I just don't want to fool with that. I don't have time for that. And yet when we'll let ourselves be interrupted, which is, you read the the accounts of Jesus' ministry, it's just a long-running series of interruptions, basically. Whatever Jesus is in the middle of it, somebody going, hey, Jesus, help me. Could you do this? Could you, you know? Come touch me. Come talk to me. Come help me. His whole ministry was a running series of interruptions. And I want to tell you, when you let yourself be interrupted, just understand it's Jesus doing the interrupting a lot of the times. Doesn't mean that he's not interrupting through an aggravating person. But if you watch, Jesus will draw near 
when you love and reach out in that. Well, four more things I'm going to say quickly to you. The next one is this, that, that when Jesus does speak, we often fail to, to recognize his voice. That's no big surprise. But I, I just point this out to say some of you are discouraged because you feel like, hey, when other people talk about Jesus is so near and Jesus talks to me and this is what he said. And you feel like you're on the outside of the Jesus club looking in and going, I wish he talked to me. If you belong to Christ, he does. He talks to you. The only difference is whether or not you recognize what he's saying. And I know this because it's something that I struggle with in my own life. He's walking and talking to these people. They have no idea they're hearing from Jesus. They just think, here's another person offering their thoughts on what happened in Jerusalem. It says very clearly, they, they just didn't know who he was. They didn't know who was talking. Well, Jesus is still talking. The writer of Hebrews opens his letter by saying this. Long ago, God spoke in many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. But now in these final days, he's spoken to us through his son. And so he continues to speak. Jesus is still speaking. He talks to you every day. If you belong to him, he speaks through his spirit to you and me. The problem is this. We live in a noisy world. We live in a very cluttered, busy life. It actually is the curse of the 21st century. That we just live with sensory overload. We're getting so many texts and emails and social media. Bleep, 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 you know, just, and we're, just, we're around so much. We're taking in so much. And Jesus is speaking in the middle of all that. And Jesus speaks primarily at the level of your thoughts. And all of these different stimuli, they're, they're stirring thoughts. And it's not like, I mean, don't you wish that Jesus, when he spoke in your thoughts, that he used a voice like this? Or, you know, that he, there was something distinct that you go, oh, yeah, I, I know that voice. No, his voice sounds like your voice because it's at the level of your thoughts. And it's the challenge of learning to discern what Jesus is saying. It's why it's so, so, so critically important that we have a quiet time. Why do we call time in the word and prayer a quiet time? Because it's a time that's designed where it's like, I'm going to block out all this other stuff. No text, no Facebook, no TV. I'm going to get in quiet space and for a little bit of time, really dial in, time in the Word, time in prayer, time to be still and listen. So that I get centered in, so that I've got a better chance of recognizing His character and His voice in the course of the day as He's speaking in the middle of all of these other thoughts and things going on. It's very easy to not recognize his voice. And we'll go on to say beyond that, that it is very difficult to discern Jesus' voice if we are not in the word. It says in verse 27, then they, starting with what Moses and all the prophets had said about him, that Jesus began to explain everything that had been written about himself in the scriptures. It's the word that Jesus used to help them understand who he was and what he had done. This wasn't what, what Jesus was saying. Understand, they're, they're not hearing it as being from Jesus. And they could have just written it all off as, well, it would be nice if that was true. But that was just a fellow traveler's opinion. Who knows whether they, he knows what he's talking about or not. But Jesus used the authority of the word. and He explained they knew the word and he reminded them of what they had known. And suddenly they're like, oh, wow, this is making sense. They didn't recognize the truth of what he said without the connection to the word of God. And, and it's the same thing for us. If you are not a student of the word of God, don't expect to be very good at recognizing the voice of God because you won't be. You won't. The written word of God becomes the gold standard for us as to what God says and what his character is like. 
And if you get far from that, I promise you this. I know this because you're not that different from me. Over time, you get away from the Word of God and keeping your life centered on reading that and knowing what it says. If you get away from that, you will make God over in your own image. You will make God to be what you need Him to be. Because every single one of us is so capable of convincing ourselves that God said and led toward what we just wanted. You know what I'm talking about? You know, here's a decision that I've got to make. I really hope that the decision is option A and not option B. And I prayed about it. And I just had peace. And so I did it. You know, we've all said that. The scary thing is how many times it was like we just said a prayer like we were, okay, made the decision. You know, we lobbed something up right before we made the down payment, right before we signed the lease. Jesus, is this what you want me to do? I sure hope so. Without ever pausing to, to listen and to hear from God. Well, I, you know, I'm sure that's what God would want from me because God wants me to be happy. I'm sure that God would want me in this relationship because I'm so happy when I'm with this, this babe. I'm so happy when I'm with this guy. So I'm sure that that must be the will of God. You can always convince yourself that what you want is the will of God if you get far from the Word of God. But it's amazing how the Word of God will just screw that up for you. When the Word of God says, you can't be yoked together with an unbeliever. To, to the maiden, he says, you absolutely cannot choose to be with someone, with a man who is not a believer. But I prayed about it, and I have peace in my heart. Who gives a rip? You may have peace in your heart, but the Word of God has truth in it. And the truth of God overcomes and, and trumps the peace in your heart. I can, I can have peace in a moment of time because i got my way. Can I tell this about you and me? We all have peace in our heart when we're getting our way. That's, that's just a spiritual way of saying, I'm happy because i got what I wanted. That is not the ultimate measure. The truth of God's Word is the ultimate measure. That's why the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 4.12, God's Word is alive. And it, it, isn't that good to know? I don't hold a dead book in my hand. The Spirit of God has made this different from any other thing that's ever written. He makes it come alive, and man, it's going to get in me and change me. It's alive, it's working, and it's sharper than a double-edged sword. It cuts all the way into us, where the soul and the spirit are joined to the center of our joints and bones, and it judges the thoughts and feelings of our hearts. That's exactly what he's saying. In the middle of you trying to figure out, what does God want? What is God saying? Is that just my feeling? Is that just what I wanted? And he says, the Word of God is like a sword that goes to the very heart of the matter. It, it penetrates to where soul meets spirit. The soulish part of me, what I think and feel and the decisions that I make meet the part of me where only the Spirit of God is and where the, God is speaking. And the Word of God allows me to discern what was just my feeling and my thinking and what was the, the voice of God in that. And the Word of God reveals that. Clarifying. So that as we're going through life, as we're getting the Word of God into us, and we get in a situation, and it's like, I can't think of a Bible verse that answers this, and yet when a thought comes to mind, as we find out usually in retrospect, that was the voice of the Spirit prompting us, and we're, we're realizing, I think this is what I'm supposed to do. And, and when you're analyzing that, going, well, why would that be the right thing to do? And it's like, but I... I can remember from the Word of God that this would seem to line up with the character of God. And this would seem to line up with Jesus and what He's about. 
even though there is no Bible verse that tells me what to say or do in this situation. You know what I'm talking about? That's what he means when he says the word of God is alive and active and reveals, judges our thoughts and our feelings. Blaise Pascal said this, human knowledge must be understood to be believed, but divine knowledge must be believed to be understood. That makes good sense, doesn't it? In other words, what Jesus was saying to those two people on the road, if that was just from a fellow traveler, well, then he'd need to back it up with some kind of proof. Because if it's just one human being telling another human being, you're going to have to make me understand that before I believe it. Because it could just be you being stupid. Human knowledge has got to be understood before it can be believed. But he says divine knowledge is the reverse. You've got to believe it before you'll ever understand it. This is the really tricky part in this. When God speaks to us through his word or just by his spirit, when he speaks... You don't get to pull it apart and like I would want to do, just analyze it. Now I've got to understand how this is going to work, how it's going to play out, how it's all going to fit together. No, you just got to believe it and do it and act on it before you ever are going to understand it. You ever been there? That when, when Jesus shows up and when Jesus speaks, when his word speaks, it doesn't make sense until you believe it and act on it. Fourth thing that we'll say from this is... Just very simply, Jesus draws near to those who seek to draw near to him. It says in, in the passage that when the two, when they came near the village and where they were going, and Jesus, he was just going to continue on down the road, seeing that he was going further, and they begged him, stay with us, it's already late, and the sun is going down. So Jesus went into the house to stay with them. That little part of the narrative is critical in the story, because it is a reminder for us that Jesus is a gentleman. He will press in and spend time with you and be near you if that's what you hunger for and what you pursue. It truly was a crossroads moment. I mean, they had heard some good stuff from Jesus. They had heard some helpful insights. But it was really a, a point of decision. Because here's the getting off point. Well, Jesus, our agenda was to go home. Jesus is still being a stranger in that moment. But they're realizing something significant is happening. This is a divine moment. Please, please don't continue on. We don't want to part ways with you. Come in with us. Spend the evening with us. We need to spend more time with you. They didn't even realize they were calling out to God when they did that. But it's a picture for us. If you want to be near God, you can be near God. And here really is like one of the bottom line things that I want you to walk away with today. You are as close to Jesus as you choose to be. You are as close to Jesus as you choose to be. And some of you don't believe that right now. You feel like Jesus has put you on the outside looking in, that he doesn't want you to be close. He desires to walk through every moment of life with you. You're just as close to him as you choose to be. Proverbs uh, 8.17 says, I love those who love me and those who seek me find me. Now, I know if you read that in context, you'd say, well, wisdom is who is speaking there. Well, let me give you a little tip. When you read the book of Proverbs, every time you read the word wisdom, insert Holy Spirit. Because wisdom was the, in Proverbs is the Old Testament way of expressing the Spirit of Christ. Who is saying, I love those who love me. And those who seek me, find me. It's up to us whether we will take the time. Whether we will invite Him. Whether we'll invest the time with Him. In Revelation 3, when Jesus is speaking to the church at Laodicea, a group of people who weren't bad. 
They just weren't especially good. They weren't hot. They weren't cold. They were just lukewarm. And Jesus said, that makes me so sick. You don't have the guts to really be pagans. And you don't have the heart to really live as Christians. You're just lukewarm all the time. And to them, we always, re, we always see this taken out of context as if it's a, a verse to unbelievers. It's a verse to the church. He says, look, I'm standing at the door and knocking. If any hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to be with him. And we'll have dinner with him. And they will have dinner with me. Jesus doesn't need your service. He longs for your fellowship. He longs for intimacy with you. On Friday, I had the privilege of uh, doing the funeral service for our friend and brother, Nels Ferrix. Um, that was really one of the, of all the funerals I've ever done, that was one of the most meaningful that I've ever been able to share in. Because Nels was a man who was just truly a friend of Jesus. Nels was one of those guys that didn't just serve the Lord. He was in love with Jesus. And the, the very last thing that you know, the passage teaches us, that nothing fills our hearts like spending intimate time with Jesus. They said, you know, weren't our hearts on fire when he spoke to us along the road and when he explained the scriptures to us? They testified as to how it just changed their lives and just fired them up. And to be around Nels, it, it was just that way. He, I mean, I've never known anybody like Nels. He, he was a mess. But the thing that you could not deny is he just had more joy and more fire than one little 71-year-old body deserved. It, it was funny. Of course, Nels would always want to you know, be right here on the front row and worshiping. And he would, just, he would just want to do the happy dance when we were worshiping. And, and it would be easy if you didn't know Nels to go, who was that little Fruit Loop on the front row just going so you know, crazy in the spirit up there? I mean, he just wanted to dance. It was just so good. And I just want to tell you, if you didn't know Nels well and if you wondered if he was a Fruit Loop, he weren't. He was, he was that guy through and through. And you know what was at the heart of it? He just lived in, in just this constant communion with Jesus. I shared at the funeral. Nils and I communicated frequently. He, he would email or call or he would connect with me or Jackie every day of the week. And uh, you would think that, you know, that's just an overwhelming burden. But he was such an encourager and had so much joy that it was always cool to hear from Nels. And so frequently he would sign off his emails by saying, you know, got to go now. Going to walk outside and talk with my best friend, J.C., which was how he would refer to Jesus. He was J.C. to, to Nels. He had this thing in his heart because he had learned how to just practice the presence of God. Just learning to recognize that Jesus is with us everywhere we go. And he wants to really be near and walk through us through the good and the bad and the questions and the, and the fun stuff. And he wants that for you. Now, I realize all of us online and, and in the room, we're at just countless different places in our lives. I don't know what you need. I don't know what you're looking for. But I am positive about this. Jesus wants to be right in the middle of what you're going through. He's not looking for a chance to beat you up. He's not looking for another way to punish you or make you feel guilty for the way that you've lived. He wants to come in, first of all, to be present with you and to love you. Maybe you're asking hard questions like these two travelers were and there are things you just don't understand. He wants to minister to the parts of your heart that are hurting and confused. Doesn't mean you're going to suddenly get all the answers. But I promise you, He wants to give real meaning and direction in your life.
You see, the point has not ever been for him to get you to be a more religious person to see how many times he can get you to church in a year. The point has always been that you would know him. And it may be that your experiences of religion and of Christian people have been disappointing and hurtful at times. I'm sorry if that's the case. I really am. That didn't represent Jesus and what he wants for you. Maybe you've become a bit jaded and cynical because you've seen some people do a lousy job of living out the Christian life and you've seen something that looked a lot unlike Jesus in them. Would you lay that aside long enough to just know that the, the real Jesus, the one who died and rose again for you, he's seeking you out. He's quietly stepping in, walking alongside you, and He is inviting you to really get to know Him. And that doesn't conclude with, so here are some things you need to go do better this week. None of the above. Would you just look for Him? Would you just invite Him to come in and have dinner with you? He promised He would. Would you invite Him to walk with you along beside you this week? Would you join me? Not listening to me, but would you join me right now as we go to Him together in prayer? Jesus, we are so grateful for the fact that you love us. You love us when we don't deserve it. You love us when we haven't been good. You love us when we haven't been to church. That you love us in spite of ourselves. We can't understand that, but thank you for that. Thank you for how you pursue us. Thank you that you gave your life for us. Thank you that you call us. To walk with you. That you walk with us through pain. You walk with us through challenges. You walk with us in the good days. If today you realize that Jesus isn't walking with you. Because you've never initially entered into a relationship with him. Boy that is not complicated to resolve. And I just want to invite you. If that's where you are. Why don't you invite this Jesus. To come in and walk with you. I'm not talking about joining a church or. Anything else, I'm just talking about you beginning a relationship with him by saying in your heart these words. Jesus, I want to know you. I want to be near you. I want you to walk with me. Would you forgive my sins? And would you start something new in me today? Father, I thank you for hearing and answering those prayers. Maybe you're at a different place in life that you've known Christ for a long time, but you are not in a place where you could say, boy, yeah, I know what it's like. I, I am feeling his presence and hearing his voice. I, I feel like I maybe have veered off course that have just gotten busy and distracted. Today, would you just ask him, Jesus, would you come in and eat with me? Jesus says to you today, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Would you just right now in your own way say, Jesus, please come in. Please come in and fill me and speak to me and walk with me through this week. Lord Jesus, thank you that you care. Thank you for hearing and answering. Thank you for the promise that you will be with us as we go from this place this week. And we pray this with thanksgiving in your name. Amen.